Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning. Yeah, Easter is going to be fun. I'm so stoked about Easter. I don't know, it all just kind of heads toward that point in time, all of this. Also, uh, you guys that come, those of you who are regular attenders here, or attendees, I guess is the right word, uh, if you come here to the second service, if you would consider on Easter morning kind of shifting over to either that nine, I just need about 20 or 30 people you bring people, kind of shift over to the 9.30 service or that 8 o'clock or the cafe to help make some room at that 11 o'clock service, I would, uh, I would appreciate that. Can I get a couple of hands maybe to say I'll work with you on that, Tim? Yeah, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Fantastic. Great church. I knew you had it in you. It's good to see everybody, and um, if this is your first time with us, welcome to the Vineyard. We are starting a new series as we make our way uh, toward Easter today that I'm calling 24 because we're looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before his death on the cross. Uh, It's broken into three different uh, scenes, I guess you would say. The first is the upper room, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And then we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus went through at that point. And then on the cross... Uh, what Jesus went through on the cross and the words that he said. Uh, I just, uh, like I said, I'm I'm excited about this whole process, even the 24-hour looking at it. I hope you know, let let me just say this again, and I say this often, but I hope you know that when you read the Bible, there was a lot of trouble that went into this thing, getting put together. Uh, you guys ever read this thing? It's like really awesome. I know you saw like the History Channel last week, and you probably saw the Bible in the last couple of weeks, and tonight I guess there's a, a third one on. But when we read some parts of the Bible, especially when we go back to the Old Testament and we read some of the rituals and some of the things that went on, you know, you can have a tendency to look at it and go, ah, a bunch of weird stuff, I, you know killing animals what's that about i mean come on why why sacrifices what in the world has that got to do with anything and i completely kind of can see exactly why you would say that because in our culture in our time like we just we can't see what they could see at that time but i want you to know something about god god breaks into history and speaks the language of that culture at that time He didn't break into the culture 3,000 years ago when the Passover, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, when it occurred, he didn't break in then and use terms that we would use today. He didn't use the practices of today back 3,000 years ago. He broke into history using the examples of the culture. The Israelites are not the only ones that did the, the animal sacrifices and all of that. That was kind of commonplace uh, during that period of time. But God loves to communicate to his creation. So he breaks in and he uses the tools, the languages, the examples that the culture has at that time. 
So it's not like man, a bunch of weird stuff. If we had lived back during that period of time, if we were there, it would make sense to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so it's, it's, in, it's really, really important for us to remember that. I want to read a quote. <clears throat> Sorry, this pollen working on me here. Read a quote to you by John R. Stott, uh, one of my favorite theologians. Of course, I have like a 90, as you well know, if you go to this church. But um, here's a quote concerning what we're about to look at. Our story, I'll say our series, begins on the evening of Monday, Thursday. Jesus has already seen the sunset for the last time. Within about 15 hours, his limbs will be stretched out on the cross, and he knew it. Yet the extraordinary thing is that he was thinking of his mission as still in the future, not past. He was a young man, 30 to 35 years of age. He had lived barely half the allotted span of human life. He was still at the height of his powers. At his age, most people have their best years ahead of them. Muhammad lived until he was 60, Socrates until he was 70, and Plato and Buddha were over 80 when they died. If death threatens to cut a person's life short, a sense of frustration plunges him or her into gloom. But not Jesus. For this simple reason, he did not regard the death he was about to die as bringing his mission to an end, but as actually necessary to accomplish it. It was only seconds before he died, and not till that moment, that he would be able to shout, Finished! So then, although it was his last evening, and although he had but a few more hours to live, Jesus was not looking back at a mission he had completed, still less that he had failed. He was still looking forward to a mission he was about to fulfill. The mission of a lifetime of 30 to 35 years was to be accomplished in its last 24 hours. At this period of time in the story... Uh, over in Matthew 26, it's Passover time. Now, some of you know what that means. Most of you probably don't know what Passover means. Passover was the biggest and the most important of all festivals of the Jewish people. It was the one they looked forward to every year, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe you saw that on the History Channel a few weeks ago. I mean... Watch it tonight. I have no idea their take. I got perturbed last week. Changed the channel and watched some zombies. I don't know. Um, I think it's a good effort. Don't get me wrong. You know. But if you saw the Passover when the History Channel had it, I mean, you saw Israel behind the doors, blood on the lentils around the door, and the death angel would come through and would bypass their family if the blood was over the door lentils and on the sides of the door. You know that, that little bit of it. If you go over in your Old Testament to Exodus 12, you can read the story. You can read what actually happened and get that take, which I would encourage you to do so. Uh, this feast, this Passover, a feast of unleavened bread is probably 3,000 years old. It's, it's a very old feast. Pharaoh, if you remember the story, Pharaoh would not let Israel go. Moses went to them, went to him and said, let my people go, let them go, let them go. And he would promise not, you know, then he wouldn't do it. The plagues would come. It was just a, a frustrating to say the least. 
Then eventually God tells Moses, he says, I'm going to slay the firstborn. Everyone who is not covered by the blood, everyone who's not in their home and protected by the blood. Now we look at that again and we go, what a bunch of weird stuff. You know, you find a lamb, you find a goat without blemish, a perfect little animal, a pet, and you bring it into your house. And the head of the house would put his hands on that lamb. The legs were not to be broken. And then the sins would be imputed to that lamb. The lamb would be slain. The blood would be put over on the doorpost eventually and the, would be thrown up against the altar. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, he is called the Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God. A thousand years earlier, God was preparing by speaking into culture, preparing for Jesus, the Messiah, to come on the scene. This is the night that we're going to join the disciples and Jesus. It's Passover night. Every Jewish family looked forward to Passover night. It was a celebration. There are cushions set out around the room so that they can recline and kind of lay like this. And they had little small tables where they would have the food and the Passover meal on it. It was a time of celebration as they would retell the story of the exodus of God's people being delivered from Pharaoh, from being in bondage, of working so hard and never being released, never being freed. And then of Moses coming, the blood protecting the children of Israel, them being released, their exodus out of Egypt. All of this has metaphor. I mean, amazing, beautiful metaphor and story involved in it as we come out of the bondages of our sins. It's like making bricks with no straw. It's like having the taskmaster, the Egyptian taskmasters over our lives, whipping us, making us conform to things that we wish we wouldn't do. Our sin nature in captivity and the devil as a pharaoh in our lives just taking complete control of our lives and then God comes and through the blood and through the sacrifice, Pharaoh lets the people of Israel go. Nobody can make this stuff up, man. I'm telling you. Nobody could synchronize. Do we really think 3,000 years ago a bunch of people came together and said, let's synchronize these stories up together. And then the disciples, I mean, in the Gospels and these stories, I mean, the disciples weren't that bright. I mean, really. I mean, Peter, come on. I mean, could they weave all these stories of a thousand years prior together to so they were just shouting the story of the Messiah coming to their culture? That's why we have to do a little bit of work and we dig in and we get the gold out of this. It's there waiting on us. I mean, the lamb was not to have his legs broken in the Passover. And we know Jesus, from the, from the account, Jesus' legs were not broken. Who makes this stuff up? I mean, the Romans usually took a mallet, walked over to the people who were being crucified, and broke their kneecaps. Would wail on their kneecaps so that it would hasten death. You go back a thousand years before, and you read in Exodus 12, that this lamb was not to have its legs broken. Who made this stuff up? The Romans were the ones breaking the legs and didn't break Jesus. And yet God used history, spoke into history. I hope your faith grows when you hear these things. When I discover them, my confidence just begins to increase in what God has done in us and for us through Jesus Christ. The blood that saves the household, the death angel, 
the exodus, all of it. All of it made sense in that culture, and if we dig, it makes sense to us as well. So let's read Matthew 26, and let's start at verse 17, and I've got three things I want to point out to you, and then we're going to celebrate communion this morning together. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, (coughs) Excuse me. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, probably what the Jewish people called the halal. You go back to the book of Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. That was the, the hymns that they would sing during Passover. They would sing half of it up front, half of it as they, as they left the room. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray you bless it. God, I just pray that you would, in a way, transform us to that point in time, that night of the Passover with Jesus and his best friends. Lord, I just pray in our heart also that we would take a look at this and go, you know what, God? You spoke in history to this people with their language, with their practices, with their rituals, and you use them to declare to the world and to that world at that time that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Help us see that now, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come, be with us, and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, using culture and speaking to us through culture is nothing unusual. I mean, God does that many times through people. It's something for the church to remember. Uh, the day St. Patty's Day, I see all the green out here. This is a no-pinch zone, by the way, and uh, no pinching zone. But I see all the green in the room, but maybe you don't know that St. Patrick, you know, I, I guess he was pretty much a partier up until about 15 or 16 years of age. And then the Irish, who were known as barbarians during that period of time, the Irish Celtic people came in and took him as a slave at 16 years of age, took him back to Ireland. And there he worked for them and was a slave in Ireland. He learned the language. He learned the culture. He learned their habits, how they communicated. And finally, he was released. He he left. He came back at age 22 to England. But he came back 
different than when he went. His grandfather was a preacher. His daddy was a deacon. They had preached to Patrick over and over again. He would not hear the message. But he was taken captive into a barbarian country where he served for six years and God spoke to him in bondage in that country. Patrick comes back to northern England, a changed man, and goes to seminary. This is some, what, 400, 500, somewhere along in there, A.D. I think he was born 360-something, somewhere like that. So very early on, he comes back a Christian from being in bondage to the Irish. I think it's like 20-some years he goes to seminary and he becomes a pastor in England. And at 46, 47 years of age, he has this epiphany and he says, I'm going back to Ireland to take the gospel because I know the culture, because I know how to speak the gospel to those people because I was a slave for six years in that culture. And Patrick goes back to Ireland with a team and he begins to go to each tribe, each area. He gets permission from the elders in those areas and he begins to share Christ with them. What does he know? He knows that the Irish people, the Celtics, were loved stories. They loved drama. And he knew the Old Testament by this time in his late 40s. So he was able to sit down around the fire with the Irish and tell the stories of the Old Testament. And it captured their imagination. He knew that the Irish Celts had this thing about the number three. So he used the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to communicate with them. And he did it with a team. And he went in and he spoke the language of the culture and he established churches. That's the St. Patty I celebrate. And that's the God that spoke into this culture in Exodus 12 in which Jesus, in a thousand years later, is celebrating in that upper room and is about to change everything for us. You have three fill-ins in your handout there that I just want to make these points about what was going on in that upper room. And that is this. It's about... There are three things I'm saying it's about. There's a lot more, but only three this morning. It's about his initiative. It's about God's initiative, what we are seeing in the upper room. God took the first step toward man. God extended his hands. Jesus extended his hand, the bread and the wine. You hear me say this often, that you know if God is calling you. You know if God is wooing your heart, if he is drafting you. You know it right now. You may not understand everything and you read some of this and you hear things and you go, I got questions. Well, we all got questions. All of us do, but you feel a pull. You feel God wooing and pulling on your heart. That's God's initiation. Not ours. That's God. He takes the first step toward you. And begins to pull on your heart toward himself. Just as Jesus took that bread, broke it, took the wine, poured it in that cup, and then extended it out to his disciples. They had to receive it. Jesus took the first step. John 10, 18. Jesus is speaking of his life and what's about to happen. And he says, no one is taking it from me. No one's taking my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back again. This is a command that I have received from my father. Was he murdered? Yeah. But he gave himself up for it. Sometimes I think we feel sorry for Jesus. Poor Jesus. 
If I'd have been there, that wouldn't have happened. Really. This was the plan. This was the plan. Exodus 12, a thousand years earlier than this night, was speaking to this moment in history when everything would change. I read this quote uh, this week. Uh, it was from a, out of an old book, but I loved it. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. But the Father for love. Nobody could take Jesus' life. That's why he was still looking toward the cross that night. His mission was not done yet. He wasn't looking back on 30, 35 years and going, Oh man, I can't believe it's ending. No, he was like, this is where I'm headed. I'm going to be the Paschal, the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. That is why I was sent to earth. That is my whole purpose. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For at just the right time, it wasn't happenstance. Oh, Jesus is just some historical figure. It just happened to line up with the Passover, Exodus 12. just happened they didn't break his legs. It just happened. It just happened. All the many prophecies that were fulfilled just happened. For at just the right time, we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. For it is rare for anyone to die for a righteous person, though somebody might be brave enough to die for a good person. But God demonstrates his love for us by the fact that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. At just the right time. At just the right time for you. At just the right time for me. It wasn't happenstance. We couldn't get ourselves out of the mess we're in. No one-year-old lamb, one-year-old goat could keep us from having to go right back again to sin over and over and over again. He couldn't clear the books off. He couldn't pay the price for us. It was going to take God himself, and God took the initiative and stepped into this world through Jesus Christ. I was reminded of a story talking about taking the initiative of a Catholic priest during the Holocaust, Polish Franciscan, who was in Auschwitz, And at one point in time, they came to take a bunch of the Jewish people to kill them. And this young man yelled out, I'm married and I have children, please don't. And this father, Cobb, Maximilian Cobb, stood up and said to the Nazis, he said, will you take me instead of him? And they said, yes, we will take you. And so they took Father Cobb and they put him in a basement and they put him down there and let him starve to death just like they were going to do the young man with the family. God took the initiative. He steps forward in history. He steps forward in time to initiate this redemption process. That's how much God loves you. And I hope you see that when Jesus grabs the bread and he offers it to his disciples, to his friends. They're sitting there. I mean, think about this. In this culture as well, it was common that if you went to someone's home during this era, there would be a servant there to wash your hands, a a basin of water. There would be a servant there with a towel to wash your feet because the dusty roads and all. And so the disciples walk into that room prepared for this celebration 
and no one takes the initiative to wash their feet but who? Jesus. God takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative as he extends the cup and he extends the bread and he says, here, that's how much God loves you, how much he cares for us. He made the first move. And your second feeling is this. It's about God's initiative and it's about why he had to die. It's about why he had to die. Disciples knew the story of the Passover. They knew the story of the sins. They knew they had to be forgiven. They were raised that way. They knew the story of the amazing deliverance from Egypt. And now they were hoping for deliverance from the Romans. And they were hoping Jesus would be that leader to come in and lead an insurrection through God's you know, amazing power and that now they would rule and reign over the Romans. That was their hope. But God had a bigger plan because it's the heart of man that needed to be redeemed first because, again, a one-year-old goat or a one-year-old lamb cannot cleanse our hearts or change us. We need something much deeper and profound in our lives. And so Jesus comes. It's about why he had to die. He had to die for our sins because there's nothing that could have changed our lives outside of God himself paying the price. There had to be someone perfect who lived a perfect life. And there's only one God himself. It's the day, the cross is the day that God died. He allowed himself to be killed, sacrificed for our sins. There is no value in a simply historic Jesus. You talk to people and they go, I believe, I believe there was a guy named Jesus. And then some will go, I believe he was a cool guru, man. Like I got friends to believe that. I'm like, there's no power in guru Jesus. You read the Beatitudes, try to live like that. What kind of guru says those kind of things without a heart change? You can't live like that. The Sermon on the Mount, you can't live like that without some miraculous change in your heart. Something phenomenal that happens when God breaks into this world through his own son. There's no power in baby Jesus. And there's no power in buddy Jesus. Not. No power in that. A couple of days ago, I'm watching this, I don't know what it was on television, but it was this story of a guy who had, uh, was parachuting out of a plane and his chute failed to open, just only a part of the way. He's falling at 90 miles per hour and he hits the ground at 90 miles per hour and doesn't break a bone. I mean, he hits the ground and rolls and they take him to the hospital and he is miraculously, he's sore, of course, but no bones broken. And I'm watching this interview, and he goes, well, I just think someone was smiling on me that day. Muhammad, Buddha, baby Jesus, buddy Jesus. He just runs through the whole gamut of whoever it is, and I'm thinking, wow, is that, is that the best we can do? Is that it? I mean, let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God send his only begotten son, the one and only God himself, to this earth to be tortured and die a brutal death if any old way to God would work. If you could get there on your own, why would God do that? Why would God send his only son if you could just decide to be better? I'm turning a new leaf over. Isn't it amazing when you turn the leaf over for yourself, you just kind of go backwards in the book. By the next time you hit the next page, you're already back on page something else. It's like, man, it didn't work, you know. 
because something had to change. God came to do a miraculous work in Jesus Christ. It's about why he had to die. It's about our sins, our brokenness, our estrangement from God. There was so much going on in that upper room. Jesus that day, just as the Passover lamb had hands laid on it and the sins of that family imputed to that lamb, so the sins were going to be put upon Jesus, the perfect lamb, our sins. And then we could change. In Hebrews 9.22, we read, In fact, under the law, almost everything is cleansed with blood. I mean, they knew this back during this period of time. The life was in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Blood had to be shed for forgiveness. God is speaking into history with the language of that time. And get this, I mean, the Romans, they could have cared less about whatever the prophets said about what would happen. But yet, what did they do? On Passover to appease the crowd and to keep from the Jewish people getting so upset during Passover, they would bring out a guilty prisoner and release them. Now, I don't know if you're catching this metaphor, but for an innocent man to die so a guilty man can be released sounds an awful lot like Tim Holt, the guilty man, being released and Jesus going to the cross. The Romans, I mean, God weaves the Romans. They could care less about the Jewish people and what they believe, but yet God used their habits, the things that they did, to weave it into the prophecies of years ago. Breaking the kneecaps, that was a Roman practice. That wasn't a Jewish practice. Yet it was spoken of a thousand years earlier when it came to the sacrificial lamb. Are you getting this? All for you. For you. Because he loves you. Because he wants you to be able to live a different way. Like Jeremiah 31 said, something spectacular is happening in this upper room. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, we read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. No cross, no Christianity. There's no such thing as Christianity without a cross. And when we take communion in just a minute, when you take the bread from that little cup that you were handed, what you are remembering is his death. When he offered this to his friends, to his disciples at that time, it wasn't the body that was there with them at that moment. It was the body that would be on that cross dead within 24 hours. That was the body that was being torn. And he was offering to them. Because outside of that sacrifice, there was no release. There was no forgiveness. The blood that was represented in the wine, outside of the spilling on the cross at death, there was no new covenant, no new agreement between God and his creation. 1 Corinthians 15.3, we read, For I passed on to you the most important points of what I received. Christ died for our sins in keeping with the scriptures. And in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, an innocent person for the guilty, so that he could bring you to God. He was put to death in the sphere of the flesh, but was made alive in the sphere of the, in the, sphere of the Spirit. God came to Abraham. He made a covenant with him. Remember, he's standing outside. He hasn't had any children. He looks up at the stars and God says, one day your family is going to be so big, you won't be able to count them. 
like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. Well, what happens? Jews don't keep it. Break it, break it, break it. God comes along through the Passover, delivers Israel. They come out of, of Egypt. They get to Mount Sinai. Moses comes down with another covenant. He comes down, establishes a covenant with them. What do they do? Break it, break it. No change. No change in their heart at all. Then we get about 600, 700 years from Christ's coming, and we get to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah's prophet, he tells of a new covenant that is, is going to come. It will take 600 years before it gets there, but it's coming of where God will come and cleanse the heart and take the stony heart and change it to a fleshly heart. And then it says, he will move you to obey his laws. Now that's a huge change. And that's the change of Jesus Christ coming to this earth and in the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. What a change. And that's what Jesus was pointing to. It's about God's initiative. It's about why he had to die. And lastly, this is your last one. It's about you personally. It's about you personally. They had to take the bread from Jesus. They had to take the cup from Jesus. They had to receive what Jesus was offering to them. John 6, 53 through 55, Jesus told them, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him to life on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And we read that and we go, what a bunch of weirdo vampires. What is it? You know, vampires are popular these days. But that's not what he's talking about. That is a look back to Exodus 12, which the disciples knew so well. They were celebrating Passover. They knew the lamb was to be roasted. The Paschal lamb was to be roasted and you were to eat every bit of it. Take it all. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb and you have to take me into yourself just as you would eat that Paschal lamb in Exodus 12 a thousand years earlier. So now I am the fulfillment of the Passover because in me your sins are going to be paid for and the punishment will be passed over for you. They had to receive it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is a sign of our sharing in the blood of Christ, isn't it? The bread that we break is a sign of our sharing in the body of Christ, isn't it? Roger Olson says in the Mosaic of Christian Belief, salvation is primarily a gift in which the initiative is God's, and yet there is something for the human person to do, even if only to accept the gift. You receive it. You receive it. You take the bread. You take the wine. You receive the gift of salvation from God. It was practice in the Jewish homes that when the father would sit down and tell the story of Passover that night, that one of the children would ask their father this, He would say, why is this night different from other nights? And that would be the introduction 
to telling the beautiful story of the Exodus. In Jesus, in the communion, I think he's asking us the same thing. Why is this, and why is this time in your life different than any other time? And your response to that is either to receive what Christ has made available to you or to reject it. Why is this day any different than any other? Because Jesus has extended his life to you. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, as we place ourselves in that upper room, expecting the same story that's been told for a thousand years, but now suddenly realizing that history has broken, God has broken into history with the promises of a thousand years. And as Jesus extended the bread and he offered the cup to know that, Lord, if I step forward and if I receive him into my heart, if I receive him into my life, if I give in to the call that I feel at this moment in time, that it's not a new leaf, Lord, it's a new life that begins. That now your presence comes to our life, to our heart. And as Jeremiah 31 says, you will move us, Lord to obey. You will call us to follow. This was no night like any other night. This was history in the making, Lord. May you touch our hearts, Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told to search our hearts before we take communion. It says in verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, and I love this last bit, you should all eat together. Father, search our hearts now, and if we need to confess any sins, if we need to ask for forgiveness Against anybody or anyone, Lord, we come to you tonight, this morning, and we ask for you to forgive us and cleanse us, Lord, as we prepare to celebrate your supper, the passing over of our sins through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand, I think you have these units, these little self-contained if you don't, there are people who, if you just wave your hand, we have ushers in the aisles who will be glad to pass you one. There are like two little leaves that fold back. The first one folds back. You can pull it back and the bread is revealed. And then the second one you peel back and that is the juice. 
You know, we don't take communion alone. We receive communion. We need someone to receive it from. This morning, someone gave it to you. It's communion. We take it with one another. Because this is a celebration of the birth of the church as well. The body of Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Took bread and when he had given thanks. Lord we thank you. For the body of Jesus that was broken. On that cross. For my sins. For our sins. I thank you for the blood that was spilled. On that cross to write a new contract and covenant with me, with us, of love, and that you will finish what you start in us, Lord. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember your death, Lord. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes drink my friends We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.